Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to invite you to come behind the scenes with me. I am writing a book on sustainable ambition, and the book is likely for many of you listening. It's for people who are ambitious, yet not at all costs, and are figuring out how to better align their life and work and continue to pursue their ambitions in a sustainable way. Does that sound like you? The book is early in development, and to start, over the summer and into the fall, I'll be hosting workshops to learn about and test some of the principles, practices, and tools of sustainable ambition and what I'm writing about in the book. The workshops are all free. You'll walk away with new insights and more clarity on how to make your ambitions more sustainable, how to better align your life and work, and how to pursue your ambitions in a more sustainable way. You'll also have a new way of thinking about ambitions and tools to come back to again and again to help you better align life and work and identify opportunities for sustainability. Plus, you'll be able to help me shape what is most valuable for you and others, which would be super impactful and such a gift. I'd love to have you join me on this journey and get a front row seat to what I'm developing. Again, the workshops will all be free, And in exchange, I would simply love your feedback with a short survey and feedback in the session. You can find more details and sign up to join me at sustainableambition.com slash behind the book. That's sustainableambition.com slash behind the book. I hope to see you in the coming months. I usually notice, even on Zoom, actually more easily on Zoom because you just see the person's face right there. You know, when they get really, like their speech quickens and they get really excited because they are all in for whatever it is that they're talking about. And sometimes they'll get embarrassed and be like, yo, that's not, that's not a college application thing. And it's like, it absolutely is. That's the interesting thing. It's not your presidency of a club that a gazillion other people have also done. It's this particular unique thing. This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be ambitious and navigate work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. In today's episode, I'm joined by Irina Smith. Irina was born in the former Soviet Union and grew up in Moscow. When she was nine, her family emigrated from the USSR and sought asylum in the United States as political refugees. In spite of tearfully vowing that she would never, not ever, learn English, she went on to receive a PhD in comparative literature from UCLA and teach humanities and composition at Stanford before transitioning to college's missions work and writing. She is the author of the recently released memoir, The Golden Ticket, A Life in College Admissions Essays, which explores the college application process from the perspectives of a parent, college counselor, and admissions officer. The book is what we'll be speaking about today, exploring a range of concepts Irina touches on. My hope is this episode offers two angles of insights for you. The first is on how these concepts that Irina explores can be applied to us as adults. I see a lot of application, as you'll hear me explore with her. The second is for those parents out there, or for those of us who might be offering counsel, guidance, and wisdom to kids coming up behind us. My hope is that what Irina shares can give us added insight on how we can help the next generation step into defining success on their terms, and based on what fits them best and aligns with what they want, given who they are in this world. In today's conversation, you'll hear more about Irina's life and work journey. We explore the impact and consequences of well-intentioned expectations, be it if they are parental or societal, and we cover the topics of ambition, striving, finding one's spark, and more. Let's get to it and hear from author Irina Smith. Irina, welcome to the show. Kathy, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really excited to talk about the book, and I absolutely loved it. Not surprisingly, given your experience, it's brilliantly written. Before we dig into the broader concepts of the book, I want to start with you. And really, the book is about you. It is a memoir, as I said. And you write about this in the book as well. Writing seems to have really been your calling. And you write in the book that early on, you identified as a writer. Why did writing call to you? 
Such a good question and so many different answers to that. I think when I wrote in the book that I self-identified as a writer early, I think that I may have been being a little bit over optimistic in that, you know, it made for a really resonant line. Um, it called to me in that, um, it gave me the power to arrange words on the page. But up until recently and actually after the publication of the book, I really didn't have a writing practice. So I think I was an aspirational writer, but not so much a sit down every day and write something kind of writer. And so it was just perhaps language or literature that perhaps called to you. Exactly. It was the way I think what ultimately attracted me both to reading and writing is just the infinite number of ways that words can be combined to make meaning, to delight, to horrify, to entertain, to make people laugh or cry. Um, and the power to be able to do that is a pretty heady power, obviously. So you write about this in the book that like many students you work with, you also had parents who needed to kind of come around to literature, if you will, being accepted as a field of study for you. What was that like? So my parents have indulged since the publication of the memoir in a teeny bit of revisionist history where my dad claimed that um, the chapter where he sort of gave me his blessing to major in English after the very tragic death of my seven-year-old cousin and sort of reevaluating priorities, he claims that he told me I should study literature and writing after they read my essay about getting kicked out of Europe. And I was like, yeah, that did not happen. Um, he said, yeah, we could just tell looking at your English and science grades. And I was like, nope, there, there was a long kind of chipping away at their resistance. I think once it became clear that I wasn't going to be an engineer. And even if they succeeded in sending me down the engineering path, I would have been a miserable, both personally and professionally engineer. I think they were still so, I don't even know if it was against studying language or literature. I think it was just that they didn't understand what kind of career or field that would be. And so we came to this really inane compromise where my mom said, well, you should major in international relations then because you speak Russian and you could be a diplomat. And that's kind of in that literary world, right? And I was like, no, and I have zero interest in it. Um, and so eventually I just sneakily started taking English courses and eventually they had no choice. Right. So the book covers a lot of topics and a central one being how we view ambition, success and our expectations around those. And in the book, you write, quote, I've been living at the intersection of unbridled ambition and family dysfunction for two decades. So you go in depth on this in the book, of course. But for this conversation, what did you mean by that statement? And what would you like to share of your story here so that people have context for what we discuss? So the context very briefly um, from what is a very, very long story is that um, my oldest son was diagnosed with autism when he was two and a half during my first year of teaching a humanities and composition course fresh out of receiving my PhD in comparative literature at Stanford. And so I hadn't yet worked in admissions, but I had been spending time around Stanford students who were obviously extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily ambitious, extraordinarily capable, and being told of the future that faced us and our son in terms of not being able to communicate, not being able to go to mainstream school. Um, potentially, nobody really knew this was in the 90s when there wasn't a lot of data on the outcome of kids who were diagnosed early and had early interventions was such a jarring disconnect. And then it only continued as Jordan, our oldest son, got older. Um, and I switched over to the Stanford Office of Undergraduate mission where I came fully in contact with just the relentless amount of striving and excellence and ambition and get into Stanford at all costs. 
And I don't mean to imply that it is dysfunctional to have a child with a neurological disability, but I think that the disconnect between my husband and I frenetically trying to intervene in our son's uh, or not intervene in his diagnosis, but essentially to teach him enough about how to communicate and how to be in the world so that he could be at the very least independent when he was a grown up was really jarring. And I think that our expectations for we would do everything we could based on our own lives of doing everything we could and always getting the results that we expected really colored the dysfunctional patterns that we fell into in our family, um, namely pushing particularly Jordan, but also the effect that that had on our other two children was pretty serious and not always positive. So I'm curious about that. Do you mind sharing just a little bit more about the pushing and what you might mean by that? You write about how parents want the best for their kids. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, perhaps unintentionally push, if you use that word. But when you say push, what do you mean by that? So in our case, I think what I mean by that is if when Jordan was diagnosed, if he were left to his own devices, he would open and close doors of cabinets of rooms or whatever, um, whatever door came across his path, um, or he would lie on the floor and move a truck back and forth, a toy truck and watch it with his eyes because the wheels going back and forth were interesting. And he had very little interest in communication in a quiet language who was able to repeat things and we would have these very circular conversations one that is indelibly etched in my memory is do you want a waffle waffle jordan would say say yes we would say yes he would say back and then we would say do you want a waffle and he would say waffle and so it went and it seemed like there was no way to you know just kind of break out of that repetitive pattern and my husband and I were envisioning, okay, well, in 60 or 70 years when we're dead, what's that going to look like for him? And so there is uh, an early behavioral intervention program called Applied Behavioral Analysis that is recommended clinically as a way to break down essentially activities of daily living, like language, putting on your socks, even playing with other children. And it essentially allows parents or other professionals to teach their children how to communicate and how to live in a neurotypical world in, you know, a way that grants them independence. And so the pushing was every day for about an hour, we would sit in two tiny yellow chairs with him and, you know, teach him how to say yes or no. And the way you do that very instrumentally is you offer something that he really likes and say, do you want an M&M? And as soon as he would say M&M, you would take it away and prompt him to say yes. And eventually through this process of um, negotiation and repetition, he would figure out that yes was a word that applied to Ascent, not just M&Ms or waffles or trucks or other things. And so it was this really painstaking process of breaking down language and communication and eventually more complicated skills that he really seized on and picked up on. I know a lot of parents who have done that with their kids and who basically got nowhere. Um, and I think that us doing that rigorously and keeping records allowed him to progress. And so it was the kind of pushing that we both thought was necessary because we, we were trying to help him navigate a world that was not going to accommodate him, at least at the time. And at the same time, the more progress he made, the more we expected and the more we pushed and eventually the stakes got higher and higher. And so it's what you said earlier, the best of intentions and unexpected consequences. In that commitment that you are making to spending that time with your son as well, you know, you had said in the book, I wanted to be the woman 
who could do it all. And yet your path didn't go as planned. So, and you even write in the book how much you really love teaching. And so I was curious, what was it like for you to give up teaching so that you could have more flexibility for these other things that were requiring time or where you wanted to commit your time and putting some of your attention? Right. I still really miss teaching. I haven't taught in a classroom for probably several decades, except for I think I did a guest lecture for I can't remember what. And I really miss that back and forth of a classroom. I can't say I always miss grading papers, but I definitely miss the the back and forth with students. That being said, I realize now with increasing clarity that even though I love teaching, I think that staying in academia wouldn't have given me nearly as many opportunities to do it. I would have been stuck on a tenure track uh, job somewhere, publishing or perishing, most likely perishing. And teaching isn't really valued in the academy, which is why adjuncts who are criminally underpaid are now filling those jobs. And professors are meant to concentrate on their research. So giving up the idea of myself as an academic was hard. But I do remember there was a very clear moment after my one and only Modern Language Association meeting, which is a huge professional meeting for everybody in language and literature. This one was in Chicago in 1999. And I gave a paper as part of a panel I organized that I'm still inordinately proud of. It was called Narrative Economies, Time, Money, Story in the Novels of Edith Wharton. And it went really well. Um, and I was squeezed into my pre-pregnancy suit after the birth of my, at the time, second son. He was like 11 months old. And I remember thinking, wow, I just killed that. You know, this is going to open all kinds of new doors. And then I thought, I have a four-year-old with autism. I have an 11-month-old at home. I don't think I'm going to pick up and move to Indiana, no offense to Indiana, for a tenure track job um, if I was lucky to get one. And I just had this moment of perfect clarity on the plane on the way home thinking, I'm done and I will probably never be at another MLA conference again. And Actually, 99% of the people on this plane don't know what the MLA is and don't know who Edith Wharton is or narrative economy and what that even means. And they're living happy, productive lives. And I could probably find other ways to occupy my time. So I did. Sounds like a very healthy perspective. So tell us how you got to what you're doing now. Through a very, very circuitous route. So uh, the predictable path for me would have been college graduate school and then a teaching job. And that almost happened uh, in that I got a lectureship at Stanford right out of finishing my dissertation, which was not tenure track, but not a terrible way to start a teaching career. Then my oldest was diagnosed with autism. Then it became clear that I was probably not long for the world of academia. And completely serendipitously, one of my fellow lecturers in the program where I was teaching at Stanford was also a senior associate uh, director of admissions at Stanford, John Ryder. And John was very defensive in response to the sometimes snarky observations we would make about who on earth admitted this or that student. And he kept saying, you should actually try to work in admissions to see really how difficult um, and nuanced it could be. And at the time, I had two children and I was paying essentially my entire teaching salary for daycare, where both of them kept getting ear infections. And it occurred to me that I could read applications from home. My kids could get ear infections at home for free or maybe few, fewer ear infections because they were not crawling over other children. And so I detoured into life at undergraduate admission, which honestly, I think to this day was the most interesting, intellectually engaging and exhausting job I've ever had in my life. What makes it so intellectually interesting? Well, I think just the the detective work of looking through a five-page application and trying to 
make sense of all the different narrative lines in it. Because, And I, I tell my students this all the time when we look at their application, that it's not just their essay that tells a story. Their transcript tells a story. Their test scores tell a story. Their teacher letters of recommendation absolutely tell a story, often in more ways than they or even their teachers are aware. And then their activities tell a story. Is this a student who had to work half or full time to support their family and therefore does no extracurricular activities? Or is this a student whose life seems to have been designed by committee to do all the right things and get all the right internships? Um, and then, of course, there are the essays where you get a sense of who is this person? How do they think? Um, what do they bring to the table? What would they be like to live with in a dorm? And every application is different. And just the the regional differences, because I read parts of Connecticut, parts of Texas, parts of California, occasionally the Bay Area application, which were generally left to the dean, but they would want a second or third or fourth look from somebody else. So it was just, it was kind of like opening a new mini book every time I opened an application. What you just described to me suggests so much more thought and care than I think most of us believe goes into reviewing college applications. And I know with some of these schools that now accept such a small percent that there has to be cutoffs and things like that. But one of the things that I found so interesting in reading the book and that really stood out to me was your role in really helping students that you work with. So not in the review process, but in the work that you now do in terms of working with students and helping them better understand who they are and what their story is and almost crafting that story. And in that, you know, you use this term spark often in the book and both in the sense of like, helping a student find their spark, but also you share how some parents come in and say, my, you know, my child doesn't have a spark, which I have an opinion on that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if my opinion is right. And I also think about us as adults and kind of like, what is our, you know, responsibility for ourselves in terms of finding our, our spark, perhaps. And so yeah. I'm curious for you, like, how do you think about this idea of a spark? So I have a funny story for you about that. When I was a very young child, I think maybe four, five, six at the most, because my grandfather passed away when I was seven, I overheard him talking to my mom in Russian, and this is important for context. Um, and he said to her, and I didn't hear the first part of their conversation, but he said something to her like, Irina is not a beauty, but she has a spark. And in Russian, um, the word that he used was izuminka, which means little raisin. And I was like, why do I have a little raisin? Is that good? He said I wasn't pretty. That's bad. But then he also was like, she has an izuminka, a spark, like it's a good thing. And I'm like, what is that? And I remember I came down on the side of, I would rather have the spark. Like, I think that's pretty cool. Whatever that is, I had no idea. And I never followed up to ask because I wasn't supposed to be eavesdropping. I still think of that as one of the most I think what not the most, but one of the best compliments I've ever received inadvertently. And I think it's just, it's whatever makes that person interesting to be with. And it could be so many different things. Um, I am curious to hear your opinion about parents who, um, announce, I mean, not in their child's hearing, but literally I would get inquiries from parents who are like, you know, I'm worried that my nine, ninth grade daughter doesn't have a spark. And I'm like, gosh, that's a very healthy way to approach your child. Um, it's from a perspective of you're boring and you suck. And, you know, I'm sure she didn't like say that to her daughter, but it's, it's not a good mindset. And so what I try to help my students do is cut through the noise of who they think they're supposed to be or who they think other people want them to be and figure out what are the things that make them sit up a little bit taller and make their eyes shine a little brighter when they tell me about them. And I usually notice, even on Zoom, actually more easily on Zoom, because you just see the person's face right there. Um, you know, when they get really like their speech quickens and they get really excited because they are all in for whatever it is that they're talking about. And sometimes they'll get embarrassed and be like, yo, that's not that's not a college application thing. And it's like, it absolutely is. That's the interesting thing. It's not your 
presidency of a club that a gazillion other people have also done. It's this particular unique thing. Yeah, I think what I find so interesting about it is that my instinct is to say that if you think your title doesn't have a spark, it's that it just hasn't been uncovered or lit yet. And so it's just that likely your child, or even if you're an adult and feeling this way, I don't have a spark, it's that you haven't found something yet that sparks for you, right? And so I would say, like, continue to explore. And so you have a couple of examples of stories in the book of these kids, like one where it was more like, you know, the kid who, um, Andy, who decided, like, in cleaning toilets (laughs) in a park and rec job that he was, you know, had to take that he realized, like, oh, I don't want to be cleaning toilets when he was reflecting on having read Moby Dick. And, you know, and then he ends up, you know, going to was it Stanford with a Regent scholarship or maybe Berkeley, I think it was. Yes. And he got into Berkeley electrical engineering, which is like threading a very, very fine needle. Right. And then you also had the child who wound up reading the book, The Master and the Margarita, the Russian book, culture and politics book that you suggested, and he fell in love and then ended up going to Columbia. And it's not so much that it's about getting into Berkeley or getting into Columbia, because that's part of this conversation, too. But it's that they found their spark finally, and something lit them up, and they got inspired and kind of were able to get into flow and invest their energy. And so what do you think a parent's role could be, or even if you're an adult and you're still trying to find your spark, like where might you point people to look in those scenarios? That is a really excellent question. And I think the first thing I would suggest to parents as well as students is to let go of the very harmful belief that everybody has to have a passion and everybody has to have a passion like ASAP, ideally in, you know, fifth or sixth grade. So you can start cultivating it in preparation for applying to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and wherever else. And the fact is not all people and definitely not all children have a spark slash passion. And I think that I'm using the two words interchangeably because I think people assume similar things when they talk about either a spark or a passion. And, you know, there, there are some kids who clearly telegraph that they want to be a gymnast and you have to peel them off bookshelves and they're doing crazy stunts at age two or three, you know, at a time when most um, toddlers are still perfecting walking in a straight line. And there are kids who are incredible artists and there are kids who read early and who are incredibly discerning about what they read and about language and how language works. And then there are kids who just kind of develop typically and do regular kid things and maybe getting mostly Bs and aren't particularly interested in anything. And that is also fine. That is who they are. And I think that one of the key things that parents can do that I wish, I mean, I I think that we never pushed our children to have a spark or a passion, but I think that first of all, living in Palo Alto, where everybody else seems to have a spark or a passion is in and of itself a somewhat damaging activity. But I think that meeting your kids where they are and not where you think they should be because you've been reading a blog post about how all applicants to Stanford have this in common and all of a sudden you fly into a blind panic because your kid doesn't have that. Your kid is just kind of, you know, skating through life, maybe working at an ice cream shop and hanging out with their friends and playing too many video games. And oh my God, you know, call 911 and get on that immediately. And I think that's just a recipe for disaster because that's not who they are at this particular time. I don't think that means you should just let them play video games all the time. I think as parents, everybody has a responsibility to limit screen time or maybe a social activities. But I think the best thing that parents can do is spend time with their kids while their kids are still at home doing non-expectation based activities. So it might be a TV show that they find to watch together and to discuss. It might be that 
they go on a trip somewhere together that is interesting to everyone. It might be that they go through old family albums and talk about grandparents and great grandparents because you find a lot out about who you are by learning about where you came from and what those stories are. And I think these just kind of very common sense, everyday parts of parenting go out the window when the kids hit middle school, because now everything becomes about your resume and about building your readiness for the best possible high school and then building your readiness for the best possible college. But what about your readiness to just kind of like be a person in the world who cares about things other than college? It's so interesting because I'm not going to get the study right off the top of my head, but there's a study from Stanford, the adolescent program there, that says that young adults up to the age of like 26, most don't really know what they want in their life. And so we all are trying to figure out and trying to get on this path when the reality is for most of us, we grow into it over time. And I that's something that I work with even as adults that like, look, we are continually becoming and this is something that is gonna, we just need to find like, what is that interest to start with now? And then how do we keep kind of growing into it? Uh And yet I I do want to ask because we are talking about these expectations. And you write a lot about like these lofty or outsized expectations and the consequences of those expectations. You know, what are some of the consequences do you think of parents kind of probably unknowingly holding or putting these expectations on their kids. I could trot out a very long list that I keep up here in my head of just mental health problems that seem to be endemic in a lot of adolescents just because they are coping with workloads that are disproportionate um, and that they can't really handle. And they're sort of, you know, saying they got it, but they often don't and they often don't sleep enough and they're often anxious or depressed or in some cases developing or struggling with an eating disorder or they are taking other people's Adderall prescription so that they could stay up later or they're drinking, you know, Red Bull at two in the morning so they could finish yet another thing. And nobody really talks about the effect on parents, but the effect on parents is just as bad in that parents don't sleep at night. Parents are anxious all the time. Parents feel like their life is spinning out of control. And it's a little bit, and I know it's a grave comparison, but it's a little bit about addiction. Like I feel like everybody knows that what they're doing is unhealthy and bad for them and they can't stop because everybody else seems like they're also doing it and people aren't seeing a way out. And so it's this really damaging closed circle that sometimes culminates not even, you know, like, yay, we crossed the finish line, we got into a prestigious school. And often, you know, I use the we advisedly because parents like to sometimes talk about themselves as we with their kid who is going to college, whereas the parents have already been to college. But there's this, um, you know, yes, we cross the finish line. And then the kids start struggling in college because they've been working so hard and they're so burned out and or they don't have just basic real life living in the world skills where their world is not curated around their success by people who make food and do laundry and drive them places. And so a lot, a lot of damaging consequences on all sides. Given your own experiences and what you learn through working with all these students over these number of years, how do you view success now? Like, what do you think might be a more productive view of success for us all? I mean, it's, it's such success is such a big word, right? I think that it's in the case of both me as a parent in particular, and for all of my kids, I think success is being kind of at the top of what you're capable of, however you define that, not how other people define it. And I think that falling prey to what you perceive to be success is seen through the lens of popular culture or other families or other kids is 
a sure way not to be successful because I, I think, again, it creates a lot of static through which people can't see what they are, again, back to that idea of spark, what their spark might be. You know, their, their spark might be something that they have not been able to explore because they have been hearing so much about what they should be doing and what they should be cultivating and what they should be focusing on. And it may be very different from what they actually want to be focusing on. And so I think an integral part of success has to also be a willingness to explore and its corollary, the willingness to fail, right? Like I think that if you have never failed at anything, I don't know that that's success necessarily. I think it's it's following a very well-groomed, curated path. Um, and there are some people who are conventionally successful, but I would also question how, how did they get there and what are their, what are their actual meaningful connections with the world and with other people as opposed to just people who exist to smooth the path for them? That's really interesting. You know, I shared with you that in my going through the book and then like pausing to actually reflect on the various questions that you had selected to prompt your own writing. So these are all college essay questions that you use to prompt your own writing and to tell your story. I looked back and kind of just paused and was taking those in and kind of reading like, wow, these are really just in the prompts themselves, really a, a story or guidance for all of us as adults to think about like, how do you actually achieve for yourself? And a lot of it is kind of rooted in various things like, you know, how do you handle failure? How do you handle adversity? How do you bounce back? Um, the power of gratitude, you know, how are you investing in furthering your interests? I mean, there are all these things that are almost like a roadmap of what adolescence is and right. growing up is and these different things we should be learning how to do. And yet we forget that as adults, we need to continue to learn these things as we go through adult stages of development. And so I just found it very interesting to kind of pause and think, wow, these are lessons also for all of us that, you know, we're going to be uncomfortable on this journey. We're going to face challenges and failures, you know, continuing to invest in learning about yourself and figuring out what that spark might be now, mm -hmm. you know, all these different things. How do you build resilience for yourself? And I was starting to think, wow, this is kind of actually very similar to what I talk about around sustainable yeah. ambition. So I'm curious how you think about those questions. And I know you were very thoughtful about selecting them to tell your own story. But I mean, I'm curious what those questions suggest to you about life success or achieving those things for oneself. Well, I, first of all, I think it's fascinating to look at them as an adult rather than a young person who is compelled by circumstance to answer them and answer them in the allotted word count. So I will say it was absolutely delightful to rid myself of, you know, the 50 word, 150 word, 650 word limit and just to go wild with whatever I wanted to say. But I thought it was just really eye opening to revisit them as an adult and realize how little I knew about myself when I was answering them as a 17 year old, while at the same time thinking that I knew everything. I had everything figured out. I was so smart. The adults in my life could teach me nothing. And how wrong I was. I see that now many years later. Uh, but I do think that revisiting them as an adults, and I occasionally suggest this to parents where when they get very exercised that their child isn't answering the questions the right way or they're not working on their essays, um, I'm like, well, maybe you can sit down and take a stab at them. And then instead of saying to your child while tapping your foot, you know, how's the essay coming? Let me see a draft. Maybe share with them what you've written, because that could be a really interesting opportunity for your child to learn more about you. And if you remember what you wrote about originally, share that with them too. Um, just because it it's absolutely, you're so right that it is very useful to reevaluate um, re who we are as adults. We continue to change. We continue to grow. This is one of the reasons I'm profoundly grateful to my husband for suggesting taking a one-time improv class many years ago because um, by no means are we gifted improvisers, but it's such 
an interesting craft to learn and to understand and to be in a place where you can screw up in the worst possible way and you are surrounded by people who will either make it work or who will be like, yeah, good job, moving on, and who won't judge you for it. So it's never too late, I think, to mess up and to learn new things. I love that. And I love that you did improv. I've taken an improv class with my husband as well before Mm -hmm. in the past and really, really enjoyed it. And it's so interesting. I know this, but it's just striking me in this moment that, you know, that whole lesson of improv, for those who don't know it, this idea of yes, and, and it really is this fail forward kind of mindset of kind of just taking what's happened and then moving forward with it. So I appreciate that, like, yes, it teaches you kind of how to fail in quotes, but it also really does support you, as you said, in just in moving forward around that. Well, and I think really reiterating um, that, and again, coming back to the idea of success, what makes a scene work or succeed in improv, even though technically there's no right or wrong way to do things, is this act of radical cooperation with somebody that you are in a scene with, with nothing to go on but an audience suggestion. And the scene is only going to work because the two of you or the three of you or however many of you are on the stage are going to build a world together and one person can't build that. And so I think that's one of the things too that we forget in our very individualistic culture is that um, even though we embrace the myth of the rugged individual, I don't think anybody succeeds on their own. No, and I've been having conversations with some academics in this space and both their writing and in the conversations, this idea of community around us, around however you want to define success or going after your ambitions or what you achieve or just being supported in life. Or if you take the Harvard longevity study that talks Mm -hmm. about, you know, happiness is tied to community and people in our lives. So that being a component of this is, is certainly very consistent. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to come back to because like we shared this outside of this conversation that Adam Grant had had with, I'm going to forget her name now, the, the parenting expert on his um, podcast. And he had shared how he couldn't stop thinking about that conversation and how we define success for the next generation. I knew too many parents who want to live vicariously through their kids. Of course, a lot of parents know better, but still make the mistake of assuming that their kids share their definition of success. He said, I love the idea of asking our kids, how do you define success? And he said, because I think that's our job as a parent to figure out what our kids want and then try to help them in achieving it. And I know I think that resonated with you, too. I think the importance of being curious and one of the lessons that my husband and I learned the hard way is that we are both advice giving people. Um, He's a psychopharmacologist, I'm a college counselor, Um, you know, our job is to tell other people what to do, how to apply to college, what medications to take. And, you know, people appreciate and value our advice, except for our three children who have very little use for advice. And so I think, or for our advice. And so I think just being curious about what they think and about what they want. And one of the most valuable things I think we've learned during our entire journey as a family is if they come to us with a rant or a story or something, not to rush in to fix it and to tell them what to do, but to step back and say, are you venting or do you want advice or, you know, why, why are we having this conversation? And a surprisingly large number of times it's because they're venting. They don't want us to say, well, what you should do is, and I think more broadly, this also applies to not assuming that everybody wants to or can go to college. Our middle son, who was extraordinarily agreeable and affable and still is, was like, yeah, sure, I'll apply to college and I'll even go. And then once I'm there, I'm going to evince zero interest in going to class or doing homework after about three weeks when it becomes overwhelming. And so we could have found that out much less traumatically and much more easily by just even looking at his path through high school and saying, do you do you want to go to college? Is this a thing that you want? And what do you want to do? And again, for 
the parents who are listening and who are shuddering in horror, you know, what if the answer is, I would like to live in the basement for the next 40 years and play video games and have you pay for pizza delivery. Um, you know, I think you can set boundaries around that. And you could say, you know, if you're not moving out of the house, we expect you to either have a full-time job or be doing something. But I think we could have saved ourselves in our middle son's particular case by not making assumptions and by asking more questions about what what he wanted and what his goals were and trying to figure out adult to adult what we could do to help him meet those goals rather than how we could direct him. What I thought was interesting, and I don't know if you would agree with this, Irina, but in your children, I saw that they all had ambition. Even if it was, you know, your middle son wanting to potentially start a union at Trader Joe's or your daughter having an ambition to get out of Palo Alto, you know, I mean, but each of your kids and Jordan actually sounded very ambitious. And so, but they're ambitious in their own ways and in the ways that interest them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Jordan is probably the most kind of gritty work ethic driven of any of our kids, although they're all still growing and changing. So somebody else might take first place in that category. But he he's really, I think, good at articulating this is what I want and increasingly better at this is what I don't want. And I think renegotiating our relationship as he was a teen and young adult and now actual official adult um, was hard because part of, I think, the drawback of being so instructive throughout his childhood, which gave him a lot in terms of being able to be independent, being able to communicate, being able to go to mainstream school, we took longer, I think, or I don't think I know, then we should have to let go of that instructive modality. And I think to listen to him more about what he wanted. And once we did that, um, our relationship has been much, I think, healthier and more constructive. Well, as I shared at the beginning, Irina, I, I absolutely love the book. What impact do you hope it has out in the world by sharing your story in this way? I think that first and foremost, I hope that it helps families who are struggling with any number of challenges feel more seen. I think in our social media driven world, um, I think we're all used to seeing perfectly curated versions of other families' lives um, on every single social feed. And I think just normalizing talking about things that are hard or that are challenging and not putting on a brave face and saying, I'm fine, everything is fine. Um, I hope the book gives people permission to do that. I've heard from a number of parents specifically who have really struggled with their kids and who felt like they were literally the only ones in the world who had that. And um, that idea of just, again, forming a community, being able to be open with other people about struggle, um, and it doesn't have to be around children, but just struggle of any kind, and then discovering that instead of being met with judgment or opprobrium, you're actually met with compassion and understanding and people that you connect with who you didn't know before. So I'm, I'm hoping it's destigmatizing difficult topics, whether they're mental health or teen stress or just not having an Instagram perfect life. I really appreciate you pulling that forward. I want sustainable ambition to be a space of non-judgment. Even for some parents like that are holding those expectations, we all come from different cultural backgrounds, different experiences. There's a lot of reasons why a lot of parents have those expectations and want, and you write in the book, we all just want the best for our children. I love that you're bringing forward just this sense of understanding and importantly, the compassion for all of us as we navigate this journey together out here in this life. Exactly. Well, Irina, where can people find you if they want to learn more about either working with you, but also about the book? And I'll certainly capture this in the show notes as well. Great. So they can find me on my website at irenasmith.com, I-R-E-N-A-S-M-I-T-H.com. And I am also on Facebook. You can look for me under Irina Smith Author, where I 
post updates and news about the book. And uh, I'm actually collaborating if they if people want to work with me on college admissions with Sierra Admissions Consulting, where I'm an advising slash strategic member of a really wonderful six person team. So they can look up sierraadmissions.com. Fabulous. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for putting your book out into the world and for coming on and having this conversation with me. I've really loved it. And your work has impacted me. So I thank you. Kathy, thank you so much. It was such a joy to talk to you. I love this conversation with Irina. Here's what stood out to me. First, around careers. You know, sometimes we have to go against the grain and choose what is calling us, as Irina did in studying English and literature. And we can't always see where our careers are going to take us. The reality is we learn along the way, and that should really be expected. So instead of being surprised, we should almost be on the lookout or searching for it so it's not as jarring and so we can dance with the changes with more ease. I also really appreciated this exploration around the concept of finding our spark. If you don't feel like you're feeling a spark right now, I encourage you to explore your curiosities and consider enlisting family and friends and ask them to pay attention to the clues that Irina mentions. When do you light up? When do you get excited? When does your speech quicken? Those are clues that you have hit upon a spark for you. As I shared in the episode, I found the college admission essay questions that Irina selected really interesting, and I appreciated how Irina invites parents, and I would now say invites us, to explore these questions for yourself, too. I encourage you to pick up the book to learn Irina's story, but then to also get those questions and answer them for yourself. You'll definitely learn a lot by exploring them. I also just want to call out a few things that Irina says about success. Irina said, you know, specifically around kids, this idea of, quote, but I think that meeting your kids where they are and not where you think they should be, quote, is really important. So even those kids, as she talks about, where they're doing regular kid things, or maybe they're not particularly interested in anything right now. And she also says, and that is also fine. So being a little bit more accepting of our kids and perhaps for all of us and just where we are at this stage in our particular stage in life and for whatever we're experiencing, can we allow a little bit more room for defining success on our terms? And I loved how Irina said, quote, I think success is being at the top of what you're capable of, however you define that, not how other people define it. And I appreciated how she essentially said that following someone else's definition or view of success can actually be a surefire way of not achieving success for yourself. I agree with that in the context of sustainable ambition. Really, this idea of being able to define success on our own terms is so important, not just for ourselves, but also for those around us. And how can we support that more? for ourselves, for our kids, and for our community. How about for you? As you reflect on today's conversation with Irina, what spoke to you? What's one insight that caught your attention that you can put into action? With that, thank you for being here with me to learn from Irina Smith. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with new explorations on sustainable ambition. And in the meantime, make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice-monthly newsletter. You can sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. I hope you'll come back for the next episode to listen and learn together. Until next time, be well all.